Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast. This show is all about art, craft, and creativity, and I produce it weekly in the hope that it will help all of us live long and crafty lives. An invisible red thread connects those who are destined to meet, regardless of time, place, or circumstance. The thread may stretch or tangle, but it will never break. That Chinese proverb inspired Chicago fiber artist Lindsay Overmeyer to create the Red Thread Project, which is underway in Grand Rapids, Michigan, a place roughly 20 minutes from my suburban home. Right now, hundreds of people throughout West Michigan are knitting and crocheting hats that will be connected to this massively long red thread that Lindsay is busy knitting, and she says it's going to stretch about a half mile long. This fantastic community art project is being organized locally by Artworks and the Urban Institute for Contemporary Arts, also known as the UICA here in Grand Rapids. Once all the hat making is complete and all the hats are connected to the red thread, hundreds of people will gather at 7 p.m. Friday, June 30th in Rosa Park Circle in downtown Grand Rapids and put on the connected hats to share in a community-wide performance art experience. After the performance and subsequent exhibition of the connected hats at the UICA, the hats will be distributed to cancer patients who have lost their hair. The cool part of this project is that you don't have to live here to participate. You can make a hat wherever you are and mail it in. You can find the mailing address at craftsanity.com. Last week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Lindsay Overmeyer, the fiber artist who created this wonderful project. Today, she's going to talk about her life, her art, and her hope to eventually get all of you involved in the Red Thread Project. But first, we're going to hear from Cindy Koning, Executive Director of Artworks, a job training program in Grand Rapids that gives creative direction to young people ages 14 to 21. I asked her why she decided to bring the Red Thread Project to West Michigan and what it's like to walk around town wearing one of Lindsay's Red Thread sampler sets of connected hats. If you can give a little, for people who don't know what Artworks is, if you can just give a kind of a mini overview. Sure. Artworks is a nonprofit organization and our mission is to use the power of art and apprenticeships so that youth and the community thrive. And we do that through things like apprenticeships, internships, and public art projects. So is it mostly... Um like what age group of The kids are 14 to 21. Okay. Except when we do public art, which then expands that to every, anything. Anybody <laughs> yeah, for anybody, anybody, right. Yep. That's great. And that kind of brings us to the Red Thread project. Mm-hmm. If you can talk a little bit about why you decided to do this, like what, how did you get you know, the idea? Did, some, did Lindsay come to you or did you go to her? Or how did that work? Sure. Um, Artworks has a history of doing public art projects. Um, out of the idea of the Cows on Parade, which was in Chicago several years ago, we've done um, we did something fishy, which was our mm-hmm. version of that, and then we did um, small replications of the Alexander Calder sculpture that is part of our downtown. Um, after that, I thought, we don't want to do any more sculptures. What are we going to do next in terms of what, how can we actively engage people in public art, more people? The, lots of people were engaged in those projects, but then it became something that people viewed rather than participated in. Mm-hmm. Um, Lindsay Obermeyer had done a show at UICA and was very interested. She's a teacher, a certified teacher by training as well, and she was interested in doing some projects with our organization and the high school students we serve. Um, at that time, our schedules and availability didn't coincide, um, but we kept talking, and then eventually this project came up. Now, has she done this Red Thread project in other cities, or is this the first time she... She um, did. She created the Red Thread project. She was working on a body of work called the Attachment Project, 
and um, she's a fiber artist and had a, a really interesting um, some stuff that's part of a national show uh, now, and that's what was exhibited at UICA, the Urban Institute for Contemporary Arts. This is the first time we're doing it as a citywide public art project. Well, that's pretty exciting to have mm -hmm. that be in Grand Rapids, and it is different than the other projects because mm -hmm. they were people would create the sculptures when they be in view of the public. But right. this is um, tapping into the whole knitting base uh, and crocheters. And right, and and create and uh, the other was fun. It was people used to ask why we did why we were doing something fishy. Um, and I said, for fun. People, you know, art's fun. Put it on the street corner, open people's eyes and ears and create right. people, creating dialogue and, and getting people to talk and respond and interact with things, which was the primary um, thing behind the Cows on Parade as well. They said people would stop on the street corner and talk to other people, and it was great. Um, so those were great. It was just time for something different. And what draw, drew me to this project in particular was this idea of attachment and connectedness mm -hmm. and getting people to think about. I mean, it's so weird when you see these and we're doing what we call red thread capers. So we're sending people around town. Yeah, I saw that on the website. Wearing, pe wearing connected hats. And um, you'll be seeing a lot more of that coming in June. And it's just to get people to talk, think about who's connected to who and how are we connected one to another, both physically and um, but also emotionally and psychologically and interdependent. Now have you worn the connected hats out? I have. Now where have you gone? We um, took a little trip. We made our way from UICA um, down Monroe Mall. We went to the Children's Museum and walked through there and then we went down to Sanchez during lunch hour and walked through there and then down Monroe Mall to Rosa Park Circle which is where the final performance will be. Now for those who are not from Grand Rapids and will be hearing this, um, how about how, how many miles would you say you walked? So oh, I would just say probably a mile and then a mile back. Mm -hmm. And how, what kind of responses did you get? How did people oh, react? Everything from turning their heads and, and not wanting to pay attention to us to reaching out when we have these little cards we hand out that have the website. So when people ask, we say, hey, check it out online. Um, to people putting their hands out and asking, to people shouting out their apartment windows saying, what are you doing? <laughs> Who are you? What is it like to wear one of those hats and be connected and walk around? I mean, what what did you what kind of, what did you feel about it? What, were you kind of self conscious at first, or were you kind of like, wow, this is fun? Oh yeah, I, you know, as the organizer of the project, I thought it was a great idea for everybody else to go do. I wasn't really counting on doing it myself. Uh, maybe in the final performance. Right. Um, but there were a group of six of us, and uh, I'll say my reactions were in two different ways. One was, yeah, you feel very conspicuous. Um, it's very odd. We went up on a bus and gave the bus driver one and waved everybody on the bus and then got back off. Um, it got to be very fun, and but you did feel a little on show. Um, and then uh, the other reaction is that when you're connected to five other people, physically connected with you know about a meter of yarn between you, it really forced this communication issue of when we're going to stop and who's going to talk and how we're going to do that. It was a little bit like playing the telephone game from one person to the next. Stop, 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 stop. You know? Right, right. Go, no go, 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 go. Nobody tripped or fell. Yeah. A couple of people got out of their hats once in a while, but. Yeah. And these are, um, are you making, what are you, are you, you want people to make them out of cotton primarily or does it matter? Well, we have selected um, as the charity because once the hats are worn in this public performance, um, and then displayed at UICA for a period of time, we will detach them and give them to the Lax Cancer Institute and mm -hmm. to Gilda's Club. Um, it's best for those folks who are going to wear the hats who don't have hair to have them made out of soft material. Right, as opposed to like scratchy wool. Right. So we're recommending um, 
that people make them out of cotton. We will take hats out of anything and we will find places for all the remaining hats too. Mm -hmm. But your primary charity, you want to mm -hmm. go to cancer patients. Is, yep. there, uh, is this something that um, Lindsay, the artist, determined that she wanted to do work for cancer patients or was this something that you... Were that was a clear? local decision. Okay. She's always given them to charity at the end of the project. Okay. Um, which is really, it's a, a great aspect of the project. It is um, secondary in that we didn't, we just couldn't foresee having 500 hats and then throwing them all in the trash. We want to be a little bit careful about negating the power of the project itself, which is about attachment and connection sure. in the public performance. Sure. So you want to kind of stick with that theme and give people hats locally. Mm -hmm. So um, I know that you're doing a series of uh, tutorials like to have tell people how they can come and they can make a hat. And, mm -hmm. and can you talk a little more about what you're doing to kind of get the community involved before that public performance? Yeah, we feel like we've sort of been working underground. Um, we have a great design firm on board and several local printers have stepped up to do materials for us. So we sent a huge 15,000 piece mailing, postcard mailing out, and then we did teacher packets and packets to local um, places of worship and other organizations saying here's how you can get involved. We have, there are lots of ways. You can knit hats on with needles, traditional knitting style, and make very complicated things. There are also round looms that are very simple. My six and nine year old have made them. Um, and we have sets of those, buckets of those in yarn and instructions that teachers can check out and use for a week or two at a time, mm -hmm. or any organization can. Um, so we wanted to make it really accessible to everybody. And this started, when did you start work on this, like kind of launched the project? In February. Okay, so you've been working on this for a while. Yep. And you have, what is it, when is the deadline for people to have their hats to you? Uh, June 1st. Okay. Okay, so we're, yeah. we're closing in. Yep, and then we'll spend the um, month of June connecting those to a red thread, which will likely be um, three quarters or a, of a mile or a mile long. Oh, wow. So. And so who's making the red thread? Uh, Lindsay is making most of the red thread herself. She has some remaining from her previous projects, but she's having to add to that. Okay. And then a few local um, expert knitters are going to join her and help out. And then they're going to connect all those hats? Mm-hmm. We'll have workshops at UICA to okay. connect and the hats. How are they going to be connecting these hats? Like just a temporary connect? So mm -hmm. Yep, you just twist the yarn and, and use a few threads to attach it. I see, so it's really pretty simple. It's pretty simple. Yeah. And how many people do you have signed up? And tell me what's going to happen at the, the final day. Is it June? June 30th. June 30th. There's an international textile convention coming to town, and that's why we planned Convert it around that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On that day, we'll have um, lots of people walking around during the day, um, catch some of the downtown people. But at 7 p.m., people will gather, and we're hoping to have 500 people. And I think that's going to be the most challenging part of the project. Getting 500 hats won't be so hard. Um, is getting 500 people to come down and the hats will all be laid out ahead of time and people will um, register there and then go and choose their hat and put it on and then there'll be a short choreographed movement um, with everyone wearing their hats. Like what kind of movement? Like, I don't know yet. <laughs> I'm not on that committee. Okay, that. <laughs> we have Lindsay and um, a local dancer are going to put that together. Okay. And so will this be videotaped or are you going to be doing anything to kind of you get that many people together. Right. There will, be there will be videotape of it. Um, there will also be music. It will be done to music. And um, we're hoping that we can do it. We're hoping to do an aerial shot from one of the downtown buildings from the roof because it'll be so oh, yeah. interesting to look down upon. Is it going to be in a particular shape? Does she have something? It, we're going to do it at Rosa Park Circle, which is a local park sculpture designed by Maya Lynn. 
and it's in a circular form, um, and so will be a spiral spiraling out from the center of that. Oh, very cool. So how many people do you have signed up already? Not enough. <laughs> That's it. I would say we probably have about 50 people signed okay, up. Okay, so you want to make a push to get people out. And for people that might be thinking, oh, why would I do something like that? I mean, knitters tend to be, sometimes crocheters tend to be people who don't necessarily want to go out and perform. Mm-hmm. People might be thinking, oh, I have to dance, what's going on? Mm-hmm. It's nothing like that. It doesn't sound, it's, it's not. It'll be very, be very simple. simple. And it'll just be a lot be... of people who like yarn out there mm-hmm. so it'll be friendly welcoming it'll there. be a friendly very friendly we will not make you do anything it might be silly but it won't be embarrassing yeah um and it'll just be a great experience to be a part of something so large and and it'll be very directed we will be able to tell you for those who are worried about what would i do when i got there we'll tell you exactly what to do when you get there um okay. so well that sounds really really fun Okay, so let's hear more about this from Lindsay. And let's back up to how this whole thing got started and how she got started. I asked her about her artistic path to get to where she is today. So she's going to share a little bit about the progression of her work and how that kind of led up to the Red Thread Project. Well, I'm thrilled to be talking to you because I saw your show at the UICA, Women's Work, and I really liked that. Do you do art full-time? Is that artist is your job description? Yeah, I'm list that as my job description with the IRS. Yeah, and then I teach part-time. And where do you teach? It's where the question should be rephrased as, where do you not teach? (laughs) I'm currently teaching um, art reach to kindergarten all the way through eighth grade right now through two different art centers in the city called Beverly Art Center and the Evanston Art Center. Wow, that's great. So you work with pretty young children then? Yeah, the Evanston Arts Center, I teach an after-school program at all, several different public schools, and I go twice a week for six weeks at each school, and kind of like an in-house art instructor, but also artist in residence. Well, that sounds really fun. It is, and it allows me to try out all sorts of new ideas and see how the children respond to them, and I always get really jazzed from looking at their projects and seeing how they respond to things. Mm-hmm. Um, I often come away with more ideas than I think I bring to them, which is why I do it. Oh, that's great. And it's probably nice to have that blend of you work on your own art and then also have the teaching component to kind of feed off their inspiration. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's really good for getting me out of the studio because if I'm in full studio production, I can get pretty locked away. And that makes for a very cranky person. <laughs> you know. Well, that, that's great that you have that, that blend in your life. And now, do you describe yourself as a fiber artist primarily? Yeah, I guess it's a, the label I'm most familiar with and comfortable with. I don't know if I need that. You know, artist works just fine. Okay, and I guess the only reason I'm asking that is for people who can't see us right now, they can't see you and see what you're working on. And I'll, of course, publish links to your website that gives a great overview of your work. If you can talk a little bit about how you came to become an artist. What drew me to art? Wow, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, I've been making art for as long as I can remember. Both sides of my family are very, very creative. Father, mother, grandparents. And so I was always surrounded by projects in the making and watching it happen. I think I gravitated towards the textile art because it was such familiar territory. My maternal grandmother was always knitting. I don't think I remember her really without needle and yarn in hand, uh, except when she was baking. And my other grandmother, my paternal grandmother, 
was always uh, sewing clothes and doing all sorts of kind of craft-based projects for the home. And then my grandfathers were very creative people as well, making things with wood. And my father, I mean, he just had a, sold a patent for one of his flies to Orvis recently for fly fishing. Oh, wow. So he um, obviously does very detailed <laughs> work as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. it sounds like you have a very diverse background, too, with people doing various things. Yeah. Not everyone quilting or knitting. So as a kid, what types of things did you do? Were you drawn to knitting, or did you sew, too? Or um, As a kid, I did everything. I mean, from wood burning to wood carving to sewing, quilting. I did sun knitting. My grandmother kept teaching me, and I kept forgetting. And I was not very patient with drop stitches at that time. <laughs> Most of the time, though, it was painting and drawing. I went through um, junior high to a, a program for children at a Washington University, you know, one of those early high school art programs. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. Got my first dose of sculpture, was doing live figure modeling with clay. When you're in eighth grade, going into ninth grade, is pretty a profound experience, and I just kept taking studio art all the way through high school. And I guess what made the switch, I was being headhunted by some colleges for economics. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, I was pretty involved with some economic clubs and that kind of thing while I was in high school. And I had the opportunity my junior year, between junior and senior year in high school, to go abroad. My... Um, Mom just insisted that I needed to get a broader experience because I tend to be a bit of a workaholic. And uh, she used to threaten me that if I came home with one more A, she'd ground me. Uh. So uh, she said, well, here are some opportunities, here are some ideas, and you have to pick one. And so I picked one and went to Harlickson College, which is part of the University of Evansville. And I went for the summer and took a history, art history class. And fell in love. I mean, I've been taking art history in high school, and I've been taking all these studio art classes. But when you're living in this old English manor, surrounded by art, going every week to different places around the country, with none other than Lady Wedgwood, <laughs> it just, you know, that solidified it. I came back and decided, that's it. I'm going to be an artist. And I applied only to art schools for college. And where did you end up going? School of the Art Institute in Chicago. I went thinking they were just going to look at my work and tell me what I needed to, to do to get in. And I took all of my artwork, rolled up, and just put a rubber band about it. Nothing fancy. <laughs> it turned out to be an IDO day, uh, immediate decision option. And so at the end of the interview, they gave me this form to fill in and sign. And I'm like, what does this mean? And they said, well, you're in. All you have to do is send in the rest of your form. Oh, intuition. <laughs> Goodness. Wow. Yeah. So the stars aligned for you right away. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Did you specialize then in fiber? Actually, I did, but I started out in holography. Okay, can you explain what that is? Um, holograms. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, they have this great hol- they have this great holography program there. I didn't think I'd never heard of it. I didn't realize they had a whole program. Yeah. Yeah, wow. I love light. Pure light how light affects um, form, how we read form, color, all of that aspect of it. How much more pure can you get than dealing with a helium-neon laser? 
but I quickly learned after a semester <laughs> that spending 12 hours a day in a dark room was not giving me the light I was looking for. <laughs> You're studying the light in the dark. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and uh, they had this program at the time that they they don't have anymore, but I, I was really glad that I was able to partake in it, where you had to take seven-week courses. They were kind of tasters to all the different departments. And I ended up taking a taster in fibers, Joan Livingston, and that was fabulous. And I immediately decided I was going to start taking as much fiber as I could. And the following semester, signed up for Woven Structures 1 and kept going. And, yeah, so I did graduate. They don't have majors at the Art Institute, but I graduated with a concentration, you could say, in my studio art practice in the textile arts. Most of my studios were in that. And so do you have looms and so forth? Oh, yeah. In my, I'm in my studio right now, and I have a 16-harness AVL Dobby loom, so all you weavers out there would know it's quite a large loom. Yeah, you're not messing around. That's that's no. the mother loom. It's um, 40 inches wide. And then I have a knitting machine out, a two computerized sewing machines, and my regular Bernina. Wow. And then storage is, you know, closets filled with stuff. <laughs> now, is your studio at your home, or do you have... It's the full lower level of my home. Oh, well, that's great. You, did you have to negotiate for that much space, or how did that work out? Um, no. Uh, it's just my daughter and myself in the house. So you have, you each have your your own room for... <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have the upstairs, which is sort of the formal living area. And although um, the downstairs has a TV where, you know, the DVD and, and uh, VHS are hooked up so she can watch movies, um, it's pretty much my studio. It's jam-packed with equipment and art supplies and things hanging on the wall, half in progress, and... um Reference books. My great great uncle's uh, dental cabinet from when he was a dentist. Oh wow! Um, it's completely filled with beads. What a nice way to store beads! It makes it much more organized. Because before that, I had just bottles of beads everywhere. Well, and do you find that having your workspace right at your home is better for your work? I do love doing glass engraving, and I cannot do that in my home. You have all those charts of glass that go flying everywhere. So I don't do that, but um, and that I kind of regret. And I can't get too big because my ceilings are only 60 high. So sometimes when I've made pieces that actually expand to something much larger than that, I'm a bit shocked. <laughs> but I'm a single parent, and so this allows me to take care of everything at the same time. You know, and this allows me to hear if there's a problem and attend to it immediately, and then come back, which is, I guess nowadays, a lot of what my work's about, why I was in that show, Women's Work, and why I'm drawn to the fiber arts, because not all of them, but certainly many of them, knitting in particular, something you can pick up and put down and come right back to. You're not dealing with drying time, curing time, kiln time, or anything else. We kind of brought up knitting a little bit there. If we can talk a little bit about the whole art versus craft, because it looks like in a lot of your work, knitting is obviously very prominent. How do you feel about that? You're a real artist, what we call a real-life artist. And I would like to think at times I'm doing something quite artistic. If I'm using knitting in a, you know, not just making a potholder or something, but doing something that's unconventional, I definitely don't call myself an artist because I go to work and I kind of cubicle city and um, I'm not trying to make a living off this. But I look at someone like yourself, I mean, that's 
Um, and I just think, wow, what a life. That must be so great. And, um, but how do you kind of separate, or, or do you even separate the art versus craft? Kind of meld together. At one point, I owned a yarn store here in the city of Chicago called the Weaving Workshop, which has quite a legacy. It's, I've since sold it, and it's um, now called the Knitting Workshop. But, um, you know, the name originates from the Bauhaus, from Annie Albers, Joseph mm-hmm. Albers, and all those wonderful people. So, for me, it's a total seamless, fluid line between one world to the next world, from craft, design, to art. And they just overlap each other constantly. Yeah, a lot has been made about it, and certainly I've over the years gotten involved in the discussions and the debates. And a lot of people think that there's a put-down about it, which I think has been refuted given what Art News published, what, two months ago, that the crafts are one of the top ten hottest trends going on in um, the art world. So... For me, it's really it's just a constant fluid line, which is you know essentially what I'm dealing with. You know, when you're knitting, when you're embroidering, when you're weaving, you're dealing with a pliable line, which turns into a pliable plane that turns into volume, and that's art. <laughs> I have to agree with you on that, and I think that people really do spin their wheels quite a bit with the whole art versus craft. Personally, I'd rather just be doing something. Yeah, I don't really care know what yeah. what we call it i like to make stuff <laughs> so exactly i i really i just kind of circumvented but i will say that when i'm making my work i draw upon the rich tradition of the textile arts within the domestic sphere whether done by men or women doesn't matter which way i personally tend to give my work feminine voice not only because i'm a woman but um that's where a lot of my work is generating from, um, looking at gender studies. But I'm looking at how it works into the home. So it made sense for me to have my studio in my home as opposed to separate. I certainly have friends who've just recently had children, and their studios are very separate. They want that division. But I keep it constantly moving back and forth. Well, and it's great, too, that that, I mean, because you're using that to influence your work. Yeah. Kind of, you know, expression. Part of where my work comes from. Well, an expression of your life is is your work. So, Mm -hmm. you mentioned the article and and the discussion of crafts being the hot trend right now in the art world. Do you think it's a trend, or do you think with this whole, you know, crafting recognized in the magazine? People like Ann Wilson in the Whitney Biennale. You know, she's been around for years and she does amazing work. And there's so many people I can name. That was just one. She was one of my first instructors at the Art Institute, but and so she's just finally being recognized. Yeah, I mean, that, in a in a formal art world tradition, I mean, she's been recognized in other ways, but the Whitney is considered, you know, the pinnacle. So is it funny to you that now? Yeah, I it's mean, like I it's like the article, like, and I'm like, well, yeah, duh. <laughs> <laughs> Where have you guys been hiding under your blanket? Yeah. <laughs> It, it'll be interesting, too, to see how long the craft industry itself with all these supplies you can buy now. It is easier. It must be nice for, as an artist to be able to find things. You don't oh, have to yeah. go searching, really, anymore because yeah, there's I mean, big box craft stores now popping up. I started doing beadwork. My, my undergraduate thesis portfolio was all it's a large beaded embroidered panel that was 14 inches tall and 60 inches wide. Oh, my goodness. And it was a large series of landscape scenes. And it was pretty hard to find beads. <laughs> and so 
suddenly, about five years later, bead stores sprouted everywhere. And I didn't know what happened. And I know that a, a book by Alice Shear came out called The New Beadwork, and I think that had an influence. And I do think there's kind of a trend or a cyclical process within the art world, the craft world, whatever. But, um, yeah, I certainly find it much easier to find supplies. And in the yarn world, there's so many more interesting yarns. There's always been great wools and cottons and linens, but now you've got these lycra additions that can do all sorts of crazy things. And the funny part to me is, again, we have Meyer stores here in Michigan, and you can walk into Meyer's. They used to have, like, this little section. You could get your groceries and then think, oh, yeah, I need to make something quick, grab some yarn, but it was never very good yarn. Now it's, I crack up, you know, I walk past, and there's a lot more of a distraction now. Even if that's not where you go to to buy your yarn, which is not necessarily the case in my, you know, I don't, I don't go to Meyer and buy groceries and and yarn, but um, I always stop to look. <laughs> but but it's amazing. About getting double fiber. Yeah, double fiber. You, know, you can get you go and get some edible fiber and also some, <laughs> some fiber to to uh, play around with on your loom or knitting needles or whatever the case may be. But it'll be interesting to see how long. Myers has that craft section and, and how long all these craft stores are open. I've been doing art and craft my entire life, so for me, this is something that I've always been doing. And it's funny, though, when you hear people, yeah, I just got into it this year, and they're all excited knitting, and it's this new discovery, and it's fun to watch people discover things that some of us have been doing for a long time. And it's kind of nice to see that. And I hope it continues, because I love talking about yarn with people. So I think it'll uh, grab a large number of people. I do think over time some people will move on to the next trend. That's okay. You know, I saw that with my store. I saw it cyclically happen. I also saw a lot of people come back to it after not doing something for 20 years. As whether Myers will be stocked, they're going to go based on... They're going to go back, yeah, and then whatever the market demands. Well, I am interested in your experience as, you know, an artist when it sounds like you've been working with fibers for your whole career, basically. I'm curious in the kind of response you got when you started taking your work to galleries and they see that there are knitted components. Because I I have talked to artists who've said if they had any kind of, you know, craft basis, like uh, something that's considered a craft, like a, you know, um, knitting or crocheted materials, sometimes galleries would be kind of like, well, you know, we're not quite sure if this fits our criteria here. Have you run into that at all with people saying, oh, it's knitted? I mean, maybe not so much anymore, but earlier in your career. Hmm. Not really. Um, But I'm pretty good about researching the galleries that I'm going to try to approach. Um, And I think that's key for all young artists, is to not send slides or nowadays CD images or some JPEG files randomly. You really need to research the galleries. And there were always galleries even 20 years ago. God, I just said that, didn't I? (laughs) Um, That's kind of striking. Yeah, there were galleries 20 years ago that would show work that had more of a textile feel to them, whether it was through the technique, through um, imagery, or through um, kind of a sensibility you know, through pattern repeat or kind of an eye for detail um, that you see in a lot of textile-trained people. Um, But I've been represented by galleries or showing in galleries pretty much solid all the way through. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to make it into pace anytime soon unless, you know, some miraculous thing happens. Um, But 
you know, that's not the gallery I'm approaching either right now. Well, I think that's great advice to research and then you're not um, wasting your time and someone yeah. at the gallery's time. Yeah. Because who wants to, you want to approach places where you think you have a pretty good shot of, well, getting exactly. In. The gallery owners definitely appreciate it because they know you've done their, your homework. And you want to make sure that you're going to be represented by a gallery that's going to know your work and know how to show it. I mean, I've been in gallery situations where they've liked my work, the gallery owner has, but they have no experience with how to talk about it. They don't know the history of the field. And so they really don't know how to sell it, let alone curate it. And that's a problem. And so it, it takes getting to, you know, really going to shows a lot. And, you know, I work 40 to 50 hours a week in the studio, 25 hours a week um, outside the studio at one of my teaching jobs. That doesn't leave a whole lot of time left. And textiles, fiber art takes so much time that if I'm going to approach a gallery, I want to... I'm not going to have a sure bet, but I want to give it a good shot. Right, right, right. Otherwise, that's precious time that you're wasting yeah. on something. there is the mine. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and you want to be able to spend time with your daughter and just, you know, relax every now and then. What a concept. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, do you find that you, do you knit for relaxation since you're knitting <laughs> for work? I mean, what do you do to relax if you're, you're, you're kind of doing these things that some people, other people do to relax? Uh, I went on my first vacation in five years with my daughter in April, and we went to Europe. We went to London and York and then to Paris, of course, checking out yarn stores as we went. <laughs> and um, I took yarn, knitting needles on the plane, and everybody kept asking me, all my friends, well, you're going to relax, aren't you? You're not taking any work with you. I'm like, no. And so Frank came over and saw me packing. She goes, you're taking work with you. I'm like, no, I'm going to make a scarf. And she's like, not one of your... No, one to wear. <laughs> you know, no, can you explain? I baby projects I had to get done because I have all these friends who are in their mid-30s who seem to be having children now, and so I've got to get all that made. And <laughs> so, yeah, the plane and train time was great for uh, using and knitting and crocheting and, you know. Well, so you clearly love to knit. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it, you know, for work and for, you know, your off time as well. So. I know. My hands were so tired. It was funny. <laughs> so that project has been absorbing so much of my hand energy that um, my hands were tired. So I gave myself a week break, and then off I went and made scarves. I am curious about the difference uh, between a scarf for your, your work, as an artwork, and a scarf for... You're, to wear or to give away to somebody. What, how different do those two scarves look? About 30 feet. Okay. <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say something like it would be an extendo scarf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and I think it will be fun, too, for people to check out the, the links to your work. Because do you have – it seems like you have a pretty good archive here. I don't know if there's a lot more work that's not on – your gallery or really well archived. Um, there's always work that doesn't make it on. There's some that doesn't make it on because I made it, got it out of the studio into a show, and it sold before I got it photographed in time. I see. Which is a big no-no, but sometimes it inevitably happens for me. And uh, other times the work's crap. It doesn't get seen by the light of day ever again. <laughs> So you don't photograph the crap, huh? 
Sometimes I do just to remind myself of how god awful it was. <laughs> so you don't try the technique again, or uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't always hit a, hit it out of the park, you know. I, yeah, sometimes what really tends to happen for me is I get this idea that's like so great, and then I overwork it and kill it. <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, I think I've been there as well. No, <laughs> I think everybody has. Yeah, the quest for perfection sometimes uh, ends rather imperfectly. So. <laughs> Yeah. Sometimes it's better to just leave something simple. Well, what I think would be um, fun to do, if you're you're up for this, um, I have your your gallery open right now on my screen, and I think it would be kind of interesting if you could maybe briefly talk a little bit about the different because um, it seems like different phases of your your career here, where you've done um, mm-hmm. very different mediums at times, um, and uh, if you could maybe talk a little about visions of paradise, or just kind of give people an uh, an overview, not having to describe each piece or anything, but what were you what were you hoping to accomplish through that? that I think, um, um, I mean, I'm certainly, when I was developing my website, had a lot of trouble figuring out how I wanted to present things. So it was a year-long process, and it came down to um, one overall word stretches through all of my work, and that word is healing, and that's both visual healing, physical healing, and mental healing, psychological healing. And what I mean by visual, it's like aesthetic healing. And Visions of Paradise um, is part of my undergraduate series that then launched me out into the real wide world. And was really, it came from moving back to Chicago after spending a year in England, um, that kind of euphoric uh, junior year abroad. And I had been living in New York, which is this wonderful town in northern England that is surrounded by a medieval wall, literally with a moat that no longer has water in it, but in April you can see lovely daffodils. Wow. And I came back from that to a pretty violent environment. I moved into an apartment that was um, mostly Section 8 um, vouchers in it, which was fine because I met all these wonderful families, but we met also a lot of gangbangers in our neighborhood. And the day that I moved in, I had... 13 police, I think it was, chasing down a kid who had just shot another kid. Oh, goodness. And, um, you know, like I said, I, there were several families in this in this building I was in, and they were as terrified by it as I was, but they were more terrified because they were moms with little kids to protect. Yeah. And, um, you know, you just couldn't go out late at night. You had to be careful what streets you walked on at what times. And... Um, I mean, I lived there because I was trying to save money to go to school and whatnot. And, I don't know, be bohemian and artsy and whatever. But um, I needed an alternative reality. I needed my own visions of paradise. So to counterbalance the ugly that was going on, I made these things that were really, I felt to be beautiful and lush and green. Wow, yeah, because I'm looking at them now, and I I would never guess that that you were living in a a situation that had you feeling quite nervous. Yeah. 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 Well, you certainly accomplished what you set out to do because these are beautiful pieces. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I miss them, and I actually um, keep thinking about going back to them. Less for the reason that they started from, but more from the, I love gardening. (laughs) You know, I'm a master gardener. Um, I have my certificate through the University of Illinois Extension, and I just love capturing 
that because again, it's light, it's color, it's texture. You know, all the formal things I like. So, were you pulling these images then, just kind of from your head, or did you go to you know drive for a while and get to a place where someone had a great garden? Like when you were working on these pieces that are, they always came from either places that were close by that I would then go regularly to and sketch and photograph, or um, were from photographs I had found in various sources, magazines, books, whatnot. And does every piece, um, it looks like all of these, and I don't want to make a generalization if, if I'm way off base here, um, do all of them involve beads, every piece? Okay. Every single one. Okay, because I haven't clicked on all of them. Uh, I mean, they, they have sometimes some other techniques with them, but they're all bead embroidered. And about approximately how large are these pieces? Looks like they range. About 11 inches by 11 inches to about 30 by 40. Wow. That's a lot of stitching. Yes. Lots of stitching. Yeah. But it was fun. Um, You know, I studied at the Art Institute where you've got Georges Soros, you know, beautiful pointillist painting and masterpiece pointillism. And beadwork is essentially pointillism. Because you're dealing with dots of color that you cannot physically blend. Right, right. You have to deal with it optically. You know, how does your um, how does the after image affect your your viewing of it when you're looking at it um, as the light reflects? You know, and if chemically it's one color green, if you put an AB finish on it versus a matte finish versus a silver line finish, it's going to look totally different. You're going to blend that with orange and blue. You know, did you find that with, with beading... Um since I've never done any kind of like pointillism painting with beads, but did you find that you would be working on a piece and then have to kind of step, like hang it on the wall and back away to kind of see? Because oh, if, yeah. yeah, if you're working real close, I imagine that would be very difficult to gauge yeah. just what kind yeah. of effect you're getting. Oftentimes things would end up muddied, and I could end up spending eight hours in a day and then the next day pull it all out. Oh, goodness. I know, it tends to shock people, but, you know, if it doesn't look right, it doesn't look right. Well, otherwise, if you kept going, which I have actually plowed through projects only to regret it, um, where you yeah. keep you keep going and then you hate it anyway, so yeah. you might as well undo it and do it right, you know? I know. I mean, the first lesson I teach beginning knitters, for example, is we'll start knitting, they'll start knitting something. I'm like, okay, everybody stop, pull out your needles, and then rip. And they're shocked. I'm like, it's the lesson number one. If at first you don't succeed, don't be afraid to restart. Right. Otherwise, you're just going to... Waste the yarn. Mm-hmm. So exactly. The next collection I see here is a number. Yes, my hospitalization number as a child. I've had cancer twice in my life. Oh, my goodness. And uh, that was my hospital number assigned to me when I was seven. I had a Wilms tumor, which is cancer of the kidney, and it grew so rapidly and with such ferocity that with, in a short period of time, within just a few months, I was at stage four, which is one stage from death. Oh, my goodness. And so I was given um, three, three to six months to live, basically, and placed in all these radical treatments, and I'm talking to you now. <laughs> well, I'm so glad. <laughs> Thank you. My Thank goodness. You. My goodness. You were seven? Yeah, I was seven. And um, the day that I arrived in Seattle for graduate school, which was at the University of Washington, I found out that a cyst, or a lump that had been found a year previous on my thyroid was indeed most likely cancerous and needed to be removed. And so 
See, I came into the graduate school with all this, you know, gung-ho, ready to do color theory. Oh, yeah. Research and, you know, it's going to be studying the use of color in folk cultures and, wow. <laughs> Funny thing when a little tiny cyst appears on your neck. Yeah, so when you did this series, this your hospitalization number, mm-hmm. did, was that, that was, a, you started that in graduate school? Yeah. Okay, so you changed your plan and worked on this instead. Yeah, I mean, it took a little time of switching gears and allowing new thoughts to come in and um, reading, just reading. Uh, Twilight Tharp wrote this great book about, you know, the practice of the studio, you know, just forming the habit. And then when you're getting ready for a new project, researching it thoroughly. And so I was reading and reading and reading and reading. And, yeah, that's what came out of it. And, you know, took me all graduate school, and I kept working on that series um, directly for another two more years. And what medium are you working in for this, for the Um, people who can't see it right now? Machine embroidery, computerized embroidery, some weaving, although you can't really see it, uh, cyanotype, um, silk screening, Xylene transfer, although no xylene, bad for you, so wintergreen oil only. Uh, but basically, you know, uh, uh, photocopy transfer. And are these images of yourself? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's not, it obviously has a very clinical feel to it in the sense that you're kind of um, focusing in on, on either your tight shots of your face or it looks like there's other, um, you know, it's the, the, definitely the human form that you're, you're focusing yeah. on. Well, I was really concerned, still am, um, although I've shifted focus a bit, on the doctor-patient relationship and the process in which um, the patient is rendered mute and the process in which the doctor is made into a demigod. And um, I was trying to humanize my experience with illness as well as open it up for other people. Because doctors don't necessarily want that demigod mantle placed on them anyway. And as a result, while I was in grad school, I got hooked up with some anthropology professors and some uh, doctors and such. And, you know, people who are doing some pretty heavy-duty things with revamping medical school programs, you know, so that students came out of medical school not so dehumanized. Um, They have to see so many horrid, horrid things that they need to stand back. But if they do that too much, then the patient still just becomes cells. Right. You know, so where's the balance is what I was trying to get to. So did you find that while you're, you, 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 as you said, you arrived at graduate school all excited and ready to go and then, you know, get this terrible news that you have cancer and, um, or did they know for sure or they thought probably... No, they gave me, you have to be back. And I said, well, do I have to be back now? I'm on scholarship. And they're like, no, it's growing slowly enough that you can come back at your winter break and have it removed, which is what I did. But, I mean, (laughs) on the flip side, the irony, the humor, the dark side. You know, I go in for this operation, and they walk out with this scar across my neck that's very visible, with with these stitches that are very visible, and this great wonkin knot hanging out of my neck. And as a stitcher, I was like, wow, look at that. That's so cool. You know, <laughs> like, 
bugging my doctors. Okay, now what stitches did you use? Now why do you use those stitches as opposed to something else? And they thought I was nuts. <laughs> but, you know, I had to admire it because essentially then I came to realize skin really is the ultimate fabric. And what kind of stitch did they use? Um, it was the vertical mattress stitch, I believe. Okay. And do they use a variety of stitches? I guess oh, I never yeah. really gave a lot of thought to that. Yeah. When I um, accidentally cut my finger last year, and I was in the emergency room, and uh, the doctor put a couple of stitches in it, and I watched him. I'm like, now, why do you do that not that way? He goes, well, I find this one comes undone less. And I do it this way, and he starts showing me and let me practice on the last one. And I was like, this is great. I love it. <laughs> I would advise chopping your fingers. But anyway. <laughs> Well, it's probably rare that they have a patient that gets such enjoyment out of, like, knowing about the origin of the stitches and their stitch choices and all that. That's <laughs> a little nuts, I know. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, that... Visually, the Visions of Paradise to the next series is striking. But realistically, they're really just about healing. Healing... Aesthetically or community-wise, and then healing physically, you know. So you basically spent the first semester of your graduate program with this kind of cloud hanging. Yeah. I mean, were you, I mean, how was that to wake up every day thinking, okay, and I don't even know, did you think about it every day or did you? Oh, yeah. My first piece in graduate school was a giant cancer cell. <laughs> is it the the one in the, with the red in the top corner here? Yeah, yeah okay, cancer cell. Yeah, the one named cancer cell would be the cancer cell. Okay. okay. Yeah, I had no idea what it looked like. Um, didn't want, didn't go look it up just because I didn't want to get too close to personal. But yeah, I, I thought about it every day. It helped that another grad student had had thyroid cancer mm-hmm. and could tell me what to expect. You know. That helped a lot. Looking back, are you amazed that you didn't just go right away and say, okay, remove it, so you didn't have to worry about it? I mean... That's an interesting question. I never... No. No. I, um, they told me it was slow growing, so I didn't need to think, deal with it immediately, and I had things to get done. That's kind of how I thought of it. And do you think part of that could be the fact that you had survived cancer already previous to that? Yeah, I'm cocky. <laughs> well, I've actually heard people say that, you know, when they go through something traumatic or something that's so, I mean, you're told basically you're, the gig's up and, uh, you know, and then you, you, you live several years despite that and, and kind of kick it and no one really maybe expected that, that I don't know if you developed a certain fearlessness or just... Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not always a healthy thing, but, uh, yeah, definitely a fearlessness. I mean, it develops uh, a respect for your body, but also a realistic approach to it so that you don't fear it. And um, really trying to grab hold of life as much as you can. You know, not let the little moments pass you by, which is a workaholic I have to constantly remember myself with because there's a conflict. But, yeah, Definitely. Well, um, I guess if we can move on to your your next series. Um, yeah, that's hard to pronounce. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what what were you hoping to accomplish with this series? Um, a little less personal approach to studying medicine, studying the relationship between the donor and the surgeon. 
because the darner stitches fabric together to repair a hole in a garment, in a blanket, um, and the surgeon is doing the same thing, only on the body. And uh, I was fascinated by that overlap, um, especially, you know, okay, I'm going to trip into my feminist language here, but women have traditionally not been the typical surgeon. It's not only arduous practice just to get to that point, but it's the hours are not conducive to where women are traditionally finding themselves, which is still in the home, whether by choice or by force. And yet women are considered the natural stitchers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a kind of irony in that, I think. And I was looking at it, exploring with it, poking at it, playing with it, and seeing how people reacted to it. And what kind of... true. I mean, you... You can look at Grey's Anatomy, the TV show, and see all these young female surgeons-to-be, but they're going to have to seriously make some very heavy choices. In the past 10 years, I've had two of my general practitioners leave the practice because they became moms, and they wanted to spend some time at home with their children. You know, And we still don't give that allowance too often to men, but... You know, typically women do have to stay home more often than the men. Right. By force of their bodies. Right. And there probably aren't a whole lot of male surgeons who give up their careers to stay home with their children as a full-time dad. Exactly. Or take time off from it. You know, a female surgeon may not, may not give it up, but she may take a year off, which does keep down the promotions, the learning, that kind of thing. Oh, sure. I think anyone who's taken a maternity leave... Um, in any profession, can probably, I know I've personally just kind of felt like you, you kind of wonder, okay, how far down is my stock going, <laughs> you know? Um, and it's unfortunate that we even worry about that, but I guess it's part of our culture and what we have to kind of navigate as women. Right, Would, right. And finding ways to open it up so that men can enjoy some of the fruit that we get to enjoy. Oh, yeah, because the time, the time off is wonderful to be home. And not have to work. And I know sometimes employers have uh, their eyebrows go up when men want to do the family medical leave act. I have act. a friend who's an artist, and her husband's an astrophysicist, and they just had a baby, and he took a full month off. And I'm like, well, that's great. Yeah, that's awesome. Because it's time you can't get back. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that that work was kind of looking at that, playing with it, looking at it from a medical angle, and then just reveling in the patterns within our own body. There's all these great shapes in the cells and how they connect and how you look at them if you splice them one way and you splice them another way and magnify it at this level and magnify it at that level. and They're beautiful. You know, as much as any patterns that you may find at a store to embroider flowers or hearts or little daffy ducks, you know, <laughs> do you, so how many medical books do you have in your studio? Well, two bookshelves worth of just visual manuals. Wow. Yeah, and then quite a few notebooks. I took, when I was in graduate school, um, I took a semester and went to Goldsmiths College in London at the University of London and uh, went to the Welcome Institute, which is their medical library, or their historical medical library, and just spent, I don't know, two days a week for five months, four months there. 
Wow. And did a lot of Xeroxing. Yeah. And reading, obviously. But I you know, I've never counted, but it's a lot. Well, it's, I can just tell that you must have quite a collection with you know, the influence that medicine has had on your work and the whole healing process. And so I can tell you're well-researched in that area. Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, I do get a lot of doctors who look at my work, and my work's been purchased and placed in oncology departments. And so if I'm not accurate, somebody's going to call me on it. Right, because you can't display it among experts and have people not know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of hard to pass it off as reality if it's not so exactly well congratulations that's the ultimate test when a doctor doesn't have you know can't find anything wrong with it that's that's great yeah when a doctor can tell me what cell it is that they're looking at i'm very pleased especially if i've been using a doily and lots of beads yeah well very cool well and and we'll move on to um women's work and that's the um the show i got to see in person here in grand rapids which was really cool to see um what would you like to say about that collection? Um, again, it's about healing. It's from a feminine viewpoint, specifically mother's viewpoint. Um, at that time that I started the series, which was in 97, I had become a mom. My godmother had died, and I took custody of her children, and my daughter Emily lives with me. And I suddenly found myself unable to work all the time in a regular studio situation. When you're trying to get a nine-year-old to ceramic studio time and then soccer time and then basketball games and, you know, your studio had to become portable. And knitting is very portable. And so my studio became my backpack and I started making things that I could do in small increments. Whether I was in the subway or waiting in the doctor's office or in the car waiting for her to get out of basketball practice. You know, I could do it anytime, anywhere. That then led to the content. You know, my connection to my daughter and, and what that meant and my own feelings on becoming a mom, especially since I didn't get the mo- nine months of gestation. I became a mom with a fully grown seven-year-old. And, um, yeah, <laughs> it sort of came out of that. And, um, you know, I have this one piece. Uh, it has these very long nipples. And I've worn it, you know, at lectures. And when I was teaching uh, adjunct at the Art Institute for a few years, I wore it into class one time. And I had several older women who are mothers, and they just guffawed. <laughs> and they totally got it. And then it's been interesting because on the flip side, I've been in lecture situations where I'll wear it, and I'll throw the nipples out into the audience. And, you know, these, these nipples are approximately uh, 10 feet. Right, they pool on the ground. <laughs> yeah. And I'll flip them out. And at first there's this great embarrassment. And then, because it's mohair and soft and fuzzy and seductive, they start twirling it around their fingers. <laughs> they start kind of pulling me in. And then that, you know, starts to play with the whole eroticism um, versus the nurturing aspect of what breasts are. And you call that piece stretched thin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's that's a great one. And, um, yeah, I'm still in that lactating phase of life, so um, <laughs> I can fully yeah, appreciate this but, yeah. piece. Yeah, and I do want to qu- clarify, um, just to – so your your daughter, who's 18 today. Yeah, she's adopted. She she was your – you said your, your godmother. 
Yeah. Okay, okay, because I wanted to make sure. My grandmother adopted her from Romania, and then when she died, I took custody. Oh, wow. Well, what a special thing. Yeah, we're quite the dynamic duo. Yeah, and is she very artistic as well? She is. She's a ceramic student. Um, She's worked with the Gallery 37 program here in Chicago, which is an arts job training program for high school students. Fantastic. Yeah. So she's getting an early start kind of like you did. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what she does and where she goes. And I think she's much more interested in traditional uh, arts, specifically making really beautiful pottery for people to use in their everyday life, you know. And you're interested in making sweaters with 10-foot nipples. (laughs) No, I'm curious about, you you talked about how, um, for practical reasons, because you could not work at long periods of time in a studio because you were being a mom, you know, you had had responsibilities and think places to go and um, picking up and dropping off and all that good stuff that comes with being a mom, but when you're, I mean, sitting someplace, likely in public if you're waiting for your daughter, um, did you find that if you're making this really long, like, 10-foot I-cord somewhere in public and it's connected to a sweater and people, what kind of responses did you get when you're working on these projects and people think, geez, that sleeve seems a little long, don't you think? I mean, uh, it was fabulous. Um, on the subway, when somebody asks you what you're making and you say you're making a nipple, <laughs> they tend to clear off the train or wait <laughs> very quick. So you should get the whole seat to yourself. Um, you have to be careful what body part you mentioned to what person because sometimes you might get somebody then sitting a little too close. <laughs> they think, wow, this woman rocks. You know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I, I loved it because it just generated so much conversation which is what led me to the Red Thread Project because I like the conversation that ensues when you're out there in public making art. Um, I had been an artist-in-residence in Canada for uh, about five, know, five weeks back in 1996 um, up in St. Hyacinth, which is in Quebec area. And one of the prerequisites, um, or one of the requirements, I should say, of the residency was that your studio would be open to the public from 9 in the morning until 6 in the evening, every day. And you were required to be in there, in your studio space, for half of that time, making things in front of the public for the public then to talk, be able to talk to you about. Of course, this was a challenge because I had mediocre grammar school, high school French at best, but I had the most amazing conversations with people. And... Um, I loved that. So I think that kind of spurred the interest to, you know, when I saw that working at home in my studio was less practical, that if I wanted to keep up the production level I was at, that I would have to figure another way, and I started doing it out of my backpack. I just like that give and take, back and forth dialogue that comes from it. Well, and something so wonderful has grown out of this, because not only do you have the women's work you know, exhibit that I saw that was fabulous. But um, this talk, this talk about the Red Thread project, since um, obviously that's um, what's going on right now in Grand Rapids. And if you can describe um, what what is the Red Thread project? The Red Thread project is about connections between people. It comes off of the idea that if we are a community and an actual living community, then we have to pay attention to each other and 
you know, women know this certainly, when they get a run in their pantyhose or in their stockings, the fabric is no longer considered um, useful. Mm-hmm. Unless you're punk and then it's really attractive. <laughs> but, you know, it's considered a reject. And so what I'm trying to do is use the metaphor of how knitting works as a technical process to highlight society. If you don't pay attention to some members of our society that are pretty frequently ignored, the fabric of society is not nearly as strong. And I wanted to find ways of visually connecting people together. Is what it, you know, ultimately came down to. So what year did this, what did you get this whole idea of the Red Thread Project? When, when did you conceive this idea? It started gradually. You know, uh, it came out of the Women's Work series, certainly. I started the Women's Work series with making a sweater for my daughter. She was very insecure when she first moved into my, my home. And then rightly so. I mean, she'd lost two sets of parents, for God's sake. And, um, basically, I couldn't go to the bathroom alone. I couldn't take a shower alone. If I was out of the room for more than five minutes, she get very worried and try to find me. And out of sight was definitely, in her mind, out of mind. And so I made this sweater that had 15-foot long sleeves that was white that I connected to her shoulders so that she could go into other rooms in the house and be still connected to me. And, you know, you think about the umbilical cord and... You know, all those kind of stuff. So you would wear the sweater or she would wear the sweater? I would wear the sweater and connect the sweater sleeves to her. Okay. Kind of like a big hug. Okay. And then she could go in the other room and watch TV and know that I was still there. So did you wear the sweater every day? Yeah, for a couple of weeks we we would do it for, you know, 20 minutes, half hour. Okay. Just to cope. There was a therapeutic quality to it. Yeah. I was trying to find a way to reassure her that just because I was in the bathroom with the door closed, I was still there. Right, right. You know, um, and there were times when I was in the bathroom with the sweater on, with the sleeve going under the door and around the corner. Um, you know, just trying to find any way to reassure a person who was pretty convinced that I would never come home again. Oh, wow. You know, how do you reassure a person? And she was only, how old was she at the time? Experience. Just seven years old? Yeah. Wow. You know, she went to camp one day and came home, and her her first adoptive mom, my godmother, was dead. What hap- What happened to her? Was it a sudden thing? Yeah, a sudden allergic shock. Oh my gosh! So yeah. something that you know, not not even like an accident where you no. right, just very hard to process. Oh yeah, goodness! No, no time for it, and things changed radically in her life. And so I was looking at my connection to her. And then I started looking at my connection to all these people who were helping me help her. You know, people I didn't know or, like, my customers at my store who just gave me this outpouring of support when I was going through some tough times with her. And, um, you know, that connection, that sense of feeling connected, being grateful to others who I didn't know, who made such positive impacts on my life, I wanted to pay tribute to them. And then also show connection to the people who, you know, possibly didn't have a positive connection to my life, like the people who've robbed my home a few times. But, um, you know, they impacted my life. And so I'm just trying to connect into everything, every parts of society, and, um, and visualize it. So the first time I did this, I was, um, it kind of clicked as an idea when I was in, Terre Haute, Indiana, at Indiana State University, I had been asked by Kaz McHugh to 
doing, I had been there for an installation of some of my women's work pieces, and he wanted me to come back knowing I had this kind of itch to do performance to find a way to connect the town of Terre Haute to the university. What? <laughs> and so I started this circle. I made a, a giant red cord with these hats, 60 hats to represent the 60,000 people of Terre Haute and the 12,000 students on campus. And then we performed together on campus, and it was college students and then students who were coming in from the elementary schools for different day trips. And then I went to several middle schools and um, worked with the kids during their uh, gym time. Little did they know gym was not going to be basketball that day. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then gave a lecture, and then after the lecture had people from the lecture hall come and try this experience. And I, I loved that. And, and what, what was the experience? What would they do? Well, I had them do very simple dances for the most part during the performance. When I was in the middle school, we did games, games about cooperation. And I actually had one seventh grader state that he felt that he learned from this game what needs to happen to make conflict and war stop. Basically, if you didn't work together, you'd lose your hat. Right. And if you lost your hat, then you're out of the, t- off the game. And the more that happened and the less people cooperated, the fewer players there would be to win the game. And eventually there'd be one or two. And it, it was sort of startling to them to see that to really make it work, they had to work together. It did not work any other way. And I was surprised to hear that kind of metaphor. Yeah, from a seventh grader. Yeah. It's yeah. big. It's very big. And I was, you know, I hadn't come up with that exact analogy, but it's stuck in my head ever since. Yeah, and then at uh, the lecture afterwards, we did um, musical chairs, which is sort of the same thing. With everybody wearing these hats connected by the red yeah, thread. Yeah, red thread. And then, you know, if you didn't pay attention and listen carefully and, you know, follow who was in front of you and who was behind you, you'd lose your hat and lose your chair and not the game you went. You know, so it just kind of played off of all of that. And I took the idea to the University of Memphis where um, Lisa Abbott and Leslie Liebers, um, Leslie being the uh, director of the museum, the art museum at the University of Memphis, came to them with the idea. But I wanted to upscale it because when I was in Indiana, I made all the hats. I made the cord even though I performed with the students and then afterwards went to a shelter for men, a homeless shelter for men, and taught several of the men how to sew so they could help me disconnect the hats so that they could then keep them at the shelter mm-hmm. for themselves and for others that came through. I wanted it to be even more community-involved, to be a real fabric of society. Um, and so they helped me start to find the ways to get this out into the community. And so I did teacher workshops, and so I had elementary students learning to knit, and then they were coming in with hats. And after several months, um, it was pretty funny. You know, on our deadline for the collection, we only had about 70, 75 hats. And then three days later, we had over 600. Oh, my goodness. So, um, you know, but the difference between that and Grand Rapids is that it was all kept on the university campus. 
the performance was kept on the university campus. Um, the display was on the university campus in the art museum there. And, you know, a lot of the outlets came through that connection. Grand Rapids is really steady involved. We just had the mayor. The mayor of Grand Rapids just proclaimed June 30th, Red Thread Day. Did you expect something like that? Huh? Did you ever expect something no. like that? I mean... How wild is that? How can you imagine that? Yeah, no, I did not. I was immensely amused and also immensely pleased because it really states that if a political leader is saying, art shows that we can be connected as a community, how profound a statement is that? You know? Now, you know, proof is in the pudding how long that will affect. I don't know. But, you know, we're hoping to generate many more hats than I was able to to gather in Grand Rapids, in uh, Memphis. You know, and Memphis had a, such a great impact in that, you know, the project led to a permanent connection between the university and the Ronald McDonald House down there. Um, it led to several schools incorporating knitting and crochet as part of their um, charity projects. You know, and then all these hats, you know, got distributed to so many people across the city. But, you know, this time it's going to be bigger. It's done in the Rosa Park Circle, uh, which is this wonderful um, small kind of center downtown that I loved and uh, designed by Maya Lynn, which I think is another wonderful touch. And um, the whole city is coming out. I'm getting emails from people all over the place. And our website has created a lot of interest, and we're now getting hats coming in from New York, Philadelphia. It's great. And the deadline for people who want to send hats, when is your deadline? The first week of June is when okay. get them in. Um, by then would be great so that I have some sense of the sheer volume. Um, I was madly knitting this cord up until the three days before the performance went up in Memphis, and it was a quarter of a mile long, and I'm wagering on a minimum of a half a mile. We may end up longer. Now, you're, you're making a court, and I was able to um, borrow a set of four connected hats um, from uh, the folks uh, that are organizing it locally yeah. here and plan to uh, take these out for a little test walk with my family. Because um, I, I feel I need to have the experience of walking around connected um, for, you know, so I can it's do this really podcast funny. with some authority here. Um, <laughs> but um, is it, this is um, kind of like, are you making this kind of like an I-cord? Yes, the, it's and, a six-stitch I-cord on Red Heart Grande. Okay. Which is um, a super chunky yarn. And how many um, skeins of yarn does it take? To well, a proc, I'm not, I don't have the exact count in my head anymore because uh, I've lost some of the labels. But um, if you figure it's five meters per skein. Okay. And then I need a half a mile, which I can't remember how many meters are equivalent to that. We're talking lots of yarn here. You're talking lots of yarn. We'll leave it to the math majors. Me, the the former, was going to become an economist. Yeah. Um, I have uh, in my storage closet right now 60 skeins of Red Heart Grande. 
Wow. And, now, and does the whole thing have to be connected? Like, do you have multiple people knitting the cord, or do well, you do that part? I've made the cord. I mean, that to me is my way of then connecting into the city. Right. Um, but I'm also becoming a more realistic person. Half a mile or longer is a lot of cord. Yeah, it's a whole lot of cord. And I can only knit approximately two skeins per day. And what what size needles are you working on? Size 13 double points. Okay. Well, yeah, because you double points. Uh, yeah, for the eye cord. Yeah. It wears my hands out and my wrists. Yeah, I was going to say, do you have carpal tunnel or? Not yet. Yeah, just be careful. Yeah, I am. Um, I take breaks for, you know, like after the the project went up in Memphis, I didn't knit for a month. You know. Yeah, give your hands a chance to rest. Exactly. So, well, I uh, want to make sure that people have a chance. So, if there are, there are knitters out there that want to contribute, want to be connected, um, and crocheters, of course, too. Anybody, well, actually, if, even people who don't know how to knit using needles, they can use those um, the the, 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 the round frame looms. Yeah. So um, it just has, do you have any criteria, though, of what you're looking for? What is the... Well, I'm looking for adult size or okay. um, child size being eight years or older. Okay. Um, a baby's hat or an infant hat is not workable for the performance aspect. Right. We'll certainly take it if you wish to donate it, um, but we won't incorporate it into the performance only because we don't expect too many babies to be walking. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and we ask... We would prefer it be an acrylic or cotton um, so that we can easily donate. These are all going to cancer-based centers so that people who are losing their hair through chemotherapy can take some pride um, in wearing these hats and feel reconnected to the community at large around them. Kind of like getting a hug wrapped around your head. Um, But... I know. I prefer to knit in wool, so we're certainly going to be taking a lot of wool ones. I've made wool ones already for it, and they'll go to the family, you know, because when cancer affects one member, it affects the entire family. But it sounds like you're you're looking to get people to, to maybe step outside their their traditionally knitting with wool, try some fabrics some that would be or some acrylic or some linen or that fun bamboo that's out there. Anything that's soft. You know, or a wool blend that's soft. We're just looking for soft because people who've had chemotherapy, their skin's more sensitive. You know, they're they're more sensitive to touch. And do you have any idea how many hats have come in so far? Well, I know I've made sixty by now. Wow! And at what time period you've done uh, six? since the beginning of uh, last week of March? Last wow. week of February. So, are you working on that every day? Are you knitting for this project? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and you're I'm do you making a, hats or I'm making cord. Do you have a goal of how how many hats you'd like to have? For me personally, no, no, no. It's for, like for the whole from the community or more. Yeah, I like it huge. I like to see it so big that we spill outside of the Rosa Parks circle and be able to give these hats because I know Gilda's Club in Grand Rapids has said that they have a constant need for for the hats, for the chemo caps, um, for the adults, for the children. You know, there's so many people afflicted by cancer. You know, when I got started on the Red Thread Project, I had no idea. It wasn't until Leslie Labors and I were talking on the phone for the project in Memphis that, you know, 
she was really the one that saw the connection between my past with cancer and uh, this project. You know, some of the hats went to shelters, which is where I also wanted to see some of those hats go, but I definitely make hats because my hair all fell out for two and a half years as a child. And did you go through that again when you had the um, cancer as a grad no, student? fortunately. The second time around, I did not have to have chemo. Well, I that's something I imagine when you're a child. I mean, that's something that you you're, you always remember. Oh, yeah. When you're seven, eight, nine years old and everybody's laughing at you because you're baldy. Because cancer at that time was not nearly as ex- as accepted as it is now. It was People treated me in the same way people often treat people with with HIV or AIDS. Oh, my goodness. Um, and being treated like that is horrible. You know, you're not contagious. You know, a person with who's HIV positive has to exchange body fluids with you to be, quote, contagious. Right. You know. And do you think, that, well, it's, I, I see also that it's interesting, this whole connection, you know, your your history with cancer to this project and how... You've evolved as an artist, and this kind of came out, and it sounds like it was speaking with somebody else that you kind of made this connection to how this came back, you know, how your past has influenced your work. But also, do you think that the the fact that the children were fearful and maybe thought they could get cancer from you because they didn't understand it, and they then treated you poorly um, and, and, um, and, and, you know, acted inappropriately, do you think that that's made you also so interested in connecting people and kind of having everyone feel like they have a stake in this um, for acceptance because you didn't feel accepted as a child when you were going through this difficult thing. That's interesting. I never thought about it that way. Quite possibly, yeah. And I certainly don't want you know, to... Uh, I was a child when I was at St. Louis Children's Hospital. I was less aware of how sick I was, how ill I was, than my parents were. I knew I felt crappy at times, but I was just living. I wasn't looking at the possibility of losing myself. You know, I didn't think of myself as dying. Now, did they did they tell you how bad things looked? Yeah, but it's not a reality you can really grasp at seven. Yeah, I, I guess I wouldn't know what that would have meant to me at seven either. In terms of human development, it takes a child to be about ten before they can really understand what death is about. Um... You know, seven. So, you know, and I was the one that always went around and tried to make other people feel better. I think that's what really is more the connection. Um, when you're sick or when you're a part of an estranged group of society, whether you're in a shelter, whether you're in a prison, whether you're, you know, a victim of domestic abuse, um, whether you're an alcoholic, you know, Community is so important. A sense of feeling connected is so important. And when you're sick, you know, you're the, one of the few members of society that's allowed to opt out of what's expected of you. You know? Right. We're, we give children permission to stay home because they're sick. We give permission to people at work to stay home because they're sick. No, we have to because they're sick. Right. But they don't have to do the full workload that they're expected to normally otherwise do and that kind of thing. And um, when you're sick, you see other people's fears about being sick reflected back on you. Mm-hmm. 
And so I guess I'm just trying to make kids, other kids feel better and myself feel better and my parents feel better. And I guess that's still what I'm trying to do is um, make people feel more connected and feel better about themselves and feel better about the world. And what kind of response have you gotten so far from people in Grand Rapids who are hearing about this? And are people getting I mean, excited about it, I mean, and communicating to you? Because I know you're in Chicago. It's great. I get probably about two to three emails a day from people I've never met directly um, to my home email address through my website. And I have had people email me two, three, four times with updates of, of their their hats, sending me photographs. Um, they're excited because for the first time, they feel like they're making art and understanding art that before to them, they felt locked out from. Uh, you know, more conceptualized art, shall we say, that's sort of de rigueur of, you know, the white wall gallery. Um, they're starting to get they're starting to see the underpinnings of it, that it's not as foreign a concept as it's projected in the gallery scene. Um, and so there, there's this whole awakening and opening up. I have taught a workshop a week ago for teachers, and I received a response the other day from a teacher who works with children who our society tends to label as um, children at risk or youth at risk. And... She felt that she would have to have, you know, maybe a movie going on to kind of calm things down as they were they're starting their knitting. And I said, you know, wait and see, but knitting tends to have a calming effect on people. And sure enough, I got this amazing email about how much the children were enjoying it. That's you great. Know? Yeah. I, mean, I wrote her back saying, you made my day. I've been coughing and coughing all day and I'm feeling sick. And what a great email to come home to, you know. Well, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. What is your vision for, um, on the 30th, you want to see people spilling out of Rosa Parks Circle and just too many to even, you know, contain. Um, but beyond Grand Rapids, uh, do you plan to do this in other cities as well? Yeah, I do. Um, I was approached by some people to possibly bring it in two years in conjunction with Convergence, which is a... Uh, a large conference that's coming to Grand Rapids at the end of June, which I've kind of tapped into and tied myself to, so to speak. Um, it's a, sponsored by the Hand Weavers Guild of America. And uh, they've asked me to, to think about maybe going to Tampa with it. So I'm, you know, kind of sifting out that idea. And I live in Chicago. And another aspect of the hat was... There was a guy that I passed every day that I bought my newspaper from on my way to getting DL to go downtown to teach. And he never had a hat. You know, in Chicago, cold like Grim Rapids. Yeah, it's very cold. And so in the middle of the winter, this guy still didn't have a hat on. And I was like, that's it. So that weekend I made a hat. And the following week, that Monday, I gave it to him. And he was really embarrassed to be receiving a gift from, you know, a stranger. And I was like, look. I own a yarn store. I make hats. That's what I do. I like it. And I noticed that you didn't have a hat, and I didn't know if you were allergic to wool, so I made it out of acrylic. And just that time, you know, that I was taking the L, I'd always see him in the winter with his hat on. 
And uh, so I'd like to bring the project to Chicago. Well, it's a lovely story, and I yeah, I think they'd, they'd enjoy it. Yeah. It, I'm, you know, thinking it ambitiously. I'd like to see it represent the three million citizens of the city itself by making it 3,000 hats strong. In 3,000, used to seem like a really big number, but it's getting to seem more manageable now, especially after Grand Rapids. I mean, every box, collection box I saw this past weekend had at least a dozen or more hats in it. Wow. So I don't think it's that inconceivable. It's just a lot more logistics. Um, Chicago's bigger. If it's 3,000 people, that's crowd control. Dealing with police, permits. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> right. Well, what about, um, I'm sure there are people, this probably got the wheels turning in people's heads, um, the people who like to knit and crochet and, and make hats around the world. What would, I mean, if there's somebody in another country that wants to do something similar, um, is this something you want to go international with? or? I would love to. I'd love to find a way to do a United Nations Red Thread project because the idea comes from a Chinese proverb and uh, the legend of the Red Thread. And so I'd like to see if it was possible to get hats from every country all connected. And how, how would you to do that as far as display goes? Like have demonstrations around the globe on the same day or? You know, I don't know yet. It's going to take some time to figure that one out. I'll figure it out at one point. Yeah, we'll see what kind of feedback you get. Because I know that I have people that um, download this from all over the place, which was amazing to me when I first started yeah, doing this podcast. It kind of um, makes the world seem a lot smaller. Yeah. And I know I've felt connected, um, not by any particular thread, just, you know, just by, you know, getting feedback and so forth. But I, this is a wonderful project, and I know I will be wearing these uh, hats around, and I have to make, I'm going to make some hats too because I want to participate fully in this, and I'm going to try and get um, my family out on the 30th. Yeah, go participate. Paper, they call yeah. it. Up in Grand Rapids. Yeah, I think. Well, I think it'll be fun, and I want to go on the day that this happens too, because I think it'll be great. Now, are you going to be back in town before the thirtieth? Well, these are the whole last week of June. Okay. I may be up um, for the uh, artworks um, auction in it's you know for the Red Thread project. It's all in timing because I'm I'm also teaching summer camp at that point. Okay. And so I get a little. The schedule gets a little harried. It's the beginning of June. Well, I'll make sure that I definitely um, seek you out um, during one of your your visits here, so I can meet you in person because that'd yeah, be a fabulous to experience. Meet and see. Uh, do you have? You say your family. Oh yeah, I have my husband and two daughters. And how old are your daughters? My daughters are um, six months and two years. So yeah, I might have to make some mini hats and just clip <laughs> them on um, wherever we end up standing. Now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there will, there may be some mini hats already donated, but I'm not. I'll probably have them there to pin in, to stitch in um, at the last minute, because uh, otherwise I'd have to spread people out so far from their family members. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I'm sure we'll work something out, and who knows if I'll logistically be able to work out having little kids there too. But yeah. um, we had infants at the last one in Memphis, and we had dogs. Oh wow! <laughs> Wearing hats. Yeah. Believe it or not, these talks are very patient. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, it was, it was great. Well, I don't know if there's anything else um, that you'd like to say that I didn't ask you um, about this project. Um, 
Anything else you'd like to say to the world about it? People from around the globe, around the United States, if they feel free to donate hats for the current um, rendition of the Red Thread Project. And if they have ideas, please email me. I'd love to hear what people are are thinking and um, what they're doing. And I'll put links on the website for um, where they can send the hats and... um, because those are going to be collected by Artworks here in Grand Rapids. Is that what you're... Okay. And then I'll put links to your blog. And um, if there's any other links that you want me to link to um, that I'm not thinking of right now, just let me know and uh, you can send me an email. Okay, yeah. That's good. Yeah. And the National Cancer Institute and the American Cancer Society. Okay. Thank you so much um, for talking to me. I really appreciate it. I feel like I'm part of this great list after going through your website and getting connected to all these other knitters, crocheters, and other art enthusiasts. Thanks to Lindsay for inspiring us to pause for a moment and consider our connections. I'm really looking forward to participating in the Red Thread Project locally. It's going to be so cool to see hundreds of people literally connected in the city that I've grown to love. The wonderful thing about the Red Thread Project is that all of you listeners out there can get connected too, no matter where you live. Knit or crochet a hat for charity and send it to Artworks. 1031 Wealthy Street, Southeast, Grand Rapids, Michigan, 49506, by June 1st. And your hat will be connected to the Red Thread, too. I'll post this address on my website in case you missed it, so don't worry about that. I'm a fast talker, and I know it's hard to keep up. This is your chance to stitch something special for someone going through a rough time. Just think, if you participate, there's a good chance a like-minded stranger will put on your hat for the art performance June 30th, then later someone else will be given the hat you made. Someone battling cancer will put your hat on, and it will mean a lot to her to know that you, a kind stranger, are pulling for her to get better. How cool is that? So take a look at your yarn stash and see what color you want your thread to be. If you're not able to get a hat made by the deadline, stay tuned because this project has legs and just might pop up in a city near you. As she said in the interview, Lindsay would love to see it spread around the globe. That would be excellent. If you have thoughts about how this can happen, please email Lindsay, and you can find links to her address on my site as well. So check out craftsanity.com for additional information about the Red Thread Project and links to Lindsay's website. Here just are a few announcements before I sign off. I've been meaning to tell you for weeks about one of my new favorite crafting tools. It's called the Cold Heat Freestyle Glue Gun. This is not something, I, again, my, my site is, you know, to date, ad-free, so this is not an advertisement. But I want to tell you about this because this cordless glue gun totally rocks. I recently did get a chance to take this uh, glue gun for an unusual test drive in preparation for my daughter's six-month photo shoot. My sister Julie is a studio photographer and a super cool aunt, so she always takes pictures of my kids at the milestone months and years. For Amelia's six-month photo, she got a large big flower pot and we decorated some hats with silk flowers. Julie made a great cap with orange lilies glued on it and I made another one with yellow and pink blossoms. I used the cold heat glue gun for the project and really loved it because normally I'm always burning myself with my glue gun and the cord, it seems like I always want to go far, farther than the cord stretches. So this new glue gun is pretty cool. It just hit the market I'd say probably about a few months ago now. It's really cool because you can work anywhere without having to be right by an electrical outlet. You could be outside, inside, wherever. It heats up and cools down pretty quickly so you can work with less risk of burning yourself. There's also a cool light on the gun that allows you to see where you're gluing. 
first I was thinking, why in the world would you possibly need this? But now that I've had a chance to use it, and I actually had dimmed the lights where I was working because my daughter was sleeping in a pack-and-play nearby, and I kind of didn't want to have this bright light. So I actually found that that light came in very handy. The only drawback to this glue gun is the limited battery power. There's enough juice to keep you gluing for 45 minutes of continuous gluing, or about an hour and a half of stop-and-go gluing where you know, you, um, you're not constantly working. I had to stop my intensive gluing fest to recharge the battery, which slowed my creative momentum just a tad, but this situation could be easily avoided if I had an extra battery charged up and at the ready. I contacted the company to find out whether or not they sell batteries separately, and at the point you know, I talked to them, they did not, but it sounded like they do want to do that shortly. This product is currently not available in stores. You can only get it online, so on my website, I'll put links to the company on the review page if you're interested in finding out more. And the review page, you just click the top of the screen and you can find some occasional reviews that I do. Second thing I'd like to mention is I joined a quilt block swap that's organized by Christian Roach and she produces the blog Overextracted at blogspot.com. She is trying to get drunk some interest for fun quilt block swap that she's getting started. So if you're interested, I'll put a link uh, to her website also on craftsanity.com so you can check that out one last thing this is a side note about last week's show it's kind of my attention that I may have irritated some folks with my midwestern mispronunciation of the word Oregon I say Oregon well I said Oregon others apparently those that live there say Oregon so I'm sorry folks that wasn't the first and certainly won't be the last time I will mispronounce something And thanks for listening, despite my humiliating screw-ups. I really appreciate it. To lure you back into my corner, I'm going to direct you to craftsanity.com, where you'll find this week's free pattern. And it's from Lindsay Obermeyer. Thank you, thank you, Lindsay, for giving that to us. And it's a a knitted 8-foot tubular hat for two. Yes, I did say it's a knitted 8-foot tubular hat for two. So the idea is that you would make this giant tube out of your favorite funky yarn and then get together with a friend and you put on part of the tube and your friend puts on the other. Maybe you guys could take a walk like that and that'd be kind of fun. Woo, that was, (laughs) this is a whole lot of stuff to pack into one show, but I hope you enjoyed it and are still conscious. Send me an email and connect with me if you feel so inclined. I'd love to hear from you. Have a great week and don't forget to craft sanity. Thanks for listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast with Jennifer Ackerman Haywood. Visit CraftSanity.com for more information about today's guest and links to subscribing to the podcast. Want to support the show? Follow the link to vote for Craft Sanity on Podcast Alley once a month. You can also make a donation or buy goods at the Craft Sanity store. Have a suggestion for a future guest or have other feedback? Email Jennifer at CraftSanity.com. Thanks again for listening to Craft Sanity.